ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Can we design better public homes for the future? Today, people are gathering in Port Melbourne to save a public housing complex that's due to be pulled down. It's a part of Victoria's big build where many public homes and apartments will be pulled down and rebuilt. But some architects and residents argue that it's better to redesign and renovate rather than demolish. And this is not just from a design and function perspective... But you're also uprooting and relocating people, their homes, their lives and their social connections. But if they were to be rebuilt, then who gets to live there? How will they function? And as public housing quite often is, it needs to be more than just a home. What are some of the wraparound services that should be included? When we design a public home from scratch, what goes into the process? What's considered important and what's considered essential? Can we design better public homes for the future? Good morning. I'm Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. Daniel, everyone has an opinion on public homes, how they look, where they should be. But at the end of the day, these are people's homes, mm. yet they are constantly up for debate whether or not we pull them down, build more or where they should go. Why is that? It's really interesting and it's a really important time for us to be asking this question, Rochelle, because I know when I think of public housing, I immediately go to those monolithic towers that have been a hulking part of Victoria and, and particularly Greater Melbourne's landscape for the best part of you know, 50, 60 years since they've been put up. And like a lot of things, a lot of public housing and really any home, it almost feels like some of these towers in particular are coming to the end of their working lifespan, which really brings us to that question. Is it time for towers like these to go? Or, or is there actually a smarter way of doing these things so that doesn't cause hundreds, if not thousands of people to feel displaced in the move and also that doesn't really stigmatise the people who do live in public housing? And in many ways, Rochelle, it feels like we're at a point of change mm. where timing is really key. I know at the moment the waitlist for public housing in Victoria is growing. Uh, according to an article on The Guardian, since 2018, we've seen a net increase of 74 public houses. At the same time, a waitlist has grown by 45%. And this is all at the time when the state government's embarking on you know, one of the biggest builds in public housing that we've ever seen, a $5 billion build. So I guess it probably is time for us to ask the corner, ask the question, can we be doing this better than we've done it previously? Well, when they were first built, the towers in particular, they were seen as a revolution. They were seen as some kind of architectural feat. And that was a form of architecture, a form of brutalism that was happening around the world. But as you say, they are dated. And the upkeep, mm. the upkeep is something that is the government's responsibility. But if they were to be rebuilt, where and how and why is it that we all feel like we have an opinion on these? And when you look at how people's homes are built and putting lots of people in one area and the idea of, oh, communal space and wraparound services, but mm -hmm. what in reality does that look like? Because you have to think about who is this home being built for and how will it help and how will it function as a home and how can we ensure that they're there for the future and for generations as well? So what do you think? Should we be pulling down public houses and rebuilding them? Do you live in a public house? Maybe you grew up in public housing. What changes would you like to see from the size, the location, the services that may be incorporated? How do we design high-quality public housing? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is The Conversation Hour. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. And we're looking at redesigning public housing because there are many all around Victoria that are being demolished and potentially rebuilt as we speak. This text from Anonymous, it says, I live around the corner from Barrack Beacon. It's a huge site on prime real estate and it needs to be upgraded and expanded. I appreciate that this is where people have lived for a long time, but surely they can appreciate that others want the same opportunity that they have had. And as we said, that is Anonymous, who is in Beacon Cove. Joining you in the studio today, 
Serpil Sharnelmish. She is the director of Written and Recorded, which is a content marketing agency that makes podcasts and writes copy and gives all forms of communication training. Serpil, Daniel and I are really conscious today that when we're talking about redesigning or repurposing public housing, that we're discussing people's homes and that that needs to be done with dignity and respect because everyone has an opinion on public housing. You grew up in public housing. Did you feel like everybody just kind of had a say on where you lived and how you lived? I don't know if I would have been conscious of that because I was a child. So we're talking late 70s at that particular time. But what I was conscious of was the what I call architectural othering. So our home looked distinctly different to everybody else's home. You could see it from a mile away. If you're in your car, if you're taking a walk in the park, the building stood out like a sore thumb. It was like, look at where all the povo people live. And that was a stigma that my parents and my family carried with them and everyone else within that community complex. So I grew up in the commission flats in Richmond um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, anyone who's listening, I think there's five of them in a row, perhaps six. I can't remember the, the number of them, but there's a few towers that are built in a row and we were in one of them. Uh, and there was a, a patch of green grass in between all of the towers and it was very different to everybody else's home who lived, you know, in a in a home that you could uh, just walk in the front door and uh, park your bike in or park your car in and you didn't have to pass corridors uh, where strangers shared the space with you. You, um, in my experience, I felt unsafe, for instance, in... Uh, actually accessing the front door because my family experienced a lot of racism in the building. We had some neighbours who didn't think that we belonged there and it made it very tricky as children particularly to navigate that space because your mum was telling you consistently that, um, you know, run to the house rather than enjoy in, mm. enjoy your home so mm. you, you felt unsafe um, and also there was things that you experienced like you know you'd w- walk down the staircase and you'd see like a patch of red and you know you'd ask your mum oh, what's that oh that's just blood you know th- those are the type of things that you experienced because there was domestic violence in the building so if you know the bloke four do- doors down decided to use his wife as a punching bag you witnessed that as a child so you grew up in this tinderbox environment because everyone came there with issues and you know this is a thing that's not considered when uh, social housing is discussed that People don't come out from a cookie cutter. So people are in a housing commission situation because they've either experienced trauma, they're escaping trauma, they have they might have addiction issues, they might have disability, they might be a migrant or a refugee, they might be elderly and they have no family. So there's a whole heap mm. of reasons why people end up there. And the fact that we camp all of these people into a group, like they're just a problem and their needs aren't considered because they're vastly different yeah so Paul how does it make you feel when people talk about public housing as just this general thing that needs to be fixed something that (laughs) everyone has a chance to put in their 50 cents about politicians throw around public housing social housing like a football especially when it comes to election times but as someone who had their formative years in social housing, in public housing. How does it make you feel when this is just a topic of discussion that everyone wants to have a, their say on? I think that it's... it's Everyone wants to have a say on it because it's, um, you know, as you said, it's a highly politicised issue. But we have to remember at the end of the day, we shouldn't have the conversation around homes. We should have conversations around the humans in those homes. Because at the end of the day, humans make a cohesive society and how we treat other humans affects the entire tapestry of society. So if we want humans who are functioning well, who are healthy, who contribute, who have equity and access to things, then we have to start looking at 
housing and the issue of housing and the problem of housing, not as a bricks and mortar issue, but mm. as a human issue. So the idea of wraparound services, um, some of the ideas that we'll try and go through today is not just making sure that you have your home as in your bedroom, your bathroom, your kitchen, but maybe there's access to education. Some ideas like even putting a, a small part or a, a, an arm of TAFE downstairs services like drug and alcohol rehabilitation, counselling services, mental health services, it might be employment services, all of those immediate, I guess, arms of society that we need to help us navigate our way through life, should they be incorporated into public housing, do you think? I think that would be invaluable, Rochelle. And from my lived experience, I'll tell you why. So when my parents eventually moved out and moved into the suburbs, uh, and then we moved to Western Australia... I had a neighbour who took the time in Perth to teach me how to use my computer, to teach me how to put together a CV. And if my parents had remained in a commission setting, I don't think I would have had access to that sort of interaction and that sort of help because everyone was in the same bucket. So if we want to give people an opportunity to flourish in society, we need to give them the the tools to be able to skill up, to be able to take themselves out of that scenario. And we're hearing on the text line as well just how important those are. 0437 774 774. This text has just come in. The Community Grocer is an amazing wraparound service that runs weekly, affordable and culturally appropriate fruit and veg markets in public housing estates in Melbourne. It increases food security and builds community connections. Food is a great connector. Every public housing mm. estate should have one of these. And that touches on a really important point as well, isn't it, Rochelle, that it's not just housing and homes, it's also the community that gets created out of these things. Yeah, it's the village that we talk about. How do you create that? So as a part of the big build, if pulling down some of our public housing complexes and rebuilding them, you know, going from something like 89 homes to 300 homes, is that the way to go? What happens to the people who live in these homes? Where do they live? Who should have access to some of the new buildings? Big builds, And if we are building from scratch, then how do we do it better? What should public housing look like? How can it be designed for the future? This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne, your co-host today, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. And in the studio with you is Sir Paul Chanel Mish. She is the Director of Written and Recorded. And we're talking about designing public housing for the future. Over the next few years, we are going to see a mass pull-down and redesign of a lot of our public and social and affordable homes. So how do we do it well? one three hundred triple two. Well, today people are rallying to save one of the complexes, one of the public housing complexes in Port Melbourne, the Barrack Beacon Estate. And one of those is Simon Robinson. He's an architect with the firm Office. Simon, why should this particular complex be saved, not pulled down and be redesigned and repurposed, do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me today. Um, Yeah, so... Uh, the practice I run is it's a not-for-profit uh, with the intention to work for the public good. So we've been involved in looking at Barrick Beacon Estate through the lens of refurbishment rather than demolition and rebuild. Um, so we, we've worked with engineers, uh, economists and quantity surveyors to see if it's not only, not only technically feasible but also cost-effective to do so. And uh, what we've found from our studies is that you can refurbish these buildings um, and achieve all the energy and contemporary standards that the government's trying to achieve through demolition and rebuild. So, Simon, we've got $5.3 billion to spend. The big housing build's going to be one of the, the most expensive builds that the state government's put out for, for quite some time. Is that excess of money there the, one of the reasons that we're going for this knockdown rebuild approach, do you think? Uh, I think so. I think the other thing to mention is um, the way that it's been rolled out is through... Uh, private-public partnerships. So the government is actually partnering with developers to undertake this uh, re- renewal scheme. And so through that renewal, there's actually a split. It tends to be around 30-70, so 30% uh, retained as social housing and the 70% uh, transformed into private housing. So you can kind of see that that plays out on the majority of the estates mm. that get renewed. 
Simon Seppel here. I, I'm just wondering how much of the this has uh, co-design been a part of? Have they actually spoken to the people who've been residing in these buildings for many, many years about their individual needs? Uh, there has, from my understanding, there has been a level of community engagement. Um, how far that actually has progressed is questionable. Um, I think the staging of the work is also worth mentioning. The fact that currently Great Beacon is getting demolished. Uh, there's one resident left there, Margaret um, Kelly, who's running the valley today. But the contract actually hasn't been awarded for the new works. So the government's going to go ahead, relocate all the residents, demolish the buildings, and then after that's done, actually award the contract to the developer. So no one has any idea what's going to be replaced there. Um, and that's through the, the staging of works, basically laid out by the government. 89 homes that were currently there, I think the number is around 300 homes, whether they're studio apartments or three-bedroom dwellings, we don't know. But let's face facts, Simon, it's in pretty prime real estate. It's Port Melbourne, and if you're talking about mm-hmm. 300 homes, it's going to go up relatively high, some of which I dare say might have ocean views. Do you think that they're going to be the ones that will be private and sold off? And then what happens once you start to have a mix of private dwellings and private enterprise and development and social housing and affordable housing all within the one building? Yeah, so the um, the way the government's rolling it out is there's going to be a 10% increase in social housing. So there will no longer be public housing, it will be um, community housing. Um, and in this scheme, the private housings will actually be um, affordable and rentals. So they're actually not selling them off, but they will be majority for, for private um, tenure. Um, and yeah, no doubt that the, the private ones will have the, the ocean views and the um, northerly aspects and things like that. Um, and the, the 89 plus 10% of the uh, community housings will have, you can imagine, the, the worst um, parts of the sites. We're speaking with architect Simon Robinson from the firm The Office. Simon, we've heard about what is going to happen, how the government's going to do it. You know this estate very well. What's a better way of doing it? Yeah, so, I mean, the work that we've been doing is just looking at refurbishment and working with the residents. So we were asked by the residents at Barrett Beacon to see if, if refurbishing the existing buildings is possible and then to create that uplift um so what the the density that the government's saying is required from a site like this we propose to do infill so building uh new homes around existing homes and from our study we um found that it's possible to do that and it's actually cheaper than the current approach by the government well it'll be fascinating to see what happens i guess not just at this particular site but at the many sites because there are dozens of sites where we're going to see a similar thing happen simon thanks so much for your time we appreciate it simon robinson is the architect at the firm office we're talking about the future of public housing and how it can be redesigned redeveloped to make sure that the people who are living there can lead their best possible lives because these are homes but public housing is always up for debate everybody has an opinion on it so paul simon just mentioned there that they won't be public housing they'll be community housing and there's lots of different terms that get thrown around and often they get there's confusion around public housing affordable housing community Mm -hmm. housing social housing The thing that strikes me the most is that public housing is the most public. It's the most visible. So you were talking about how everybody knew where you lived. I grew up in social housing in Maui, but nobody knew that I was in social housing because Mm. it was just a house on one of the main streets in Maui. It was quite cute. had a bullnose veranda, a gorgeous (laughs) little garden, but it it was a social home. It was a home that was owned by the government. That visualisation that we have, is that something when we talk about redesigning them that needs to change about public housing so it's not that big beacon, here I am? I would argue yes, because if you didn't tell anyone, no one would have been none the wiser, right? I'm saying that you shouldn't be proud though, by the way. No, no, but the thing is the choice should be up to you. So you don't want to be othered just because it's so visually obvious that you live in this cluster that they've assigned for you whereas i think when you give people housing that is comparable to homes that the rest of the community live in 
then that makes them feel like they are part of the community. They don't feel like they are separate to the community because they're, you know, it's very separate when you visually look at these towers. And how did that make you feel, Serpil, as a young girl growing up? Did you feel like you could invite friends around to the apartment or is it something that you just couldn't do that you missed out on as a result of living in these towers? I don't ever remember play dates um, in the towers. I mean, if we visited, they, they were always with parents and they were part of the, you know, the diaspora, the Turkish diaspora who had ended up in the towers with us and that my parents would drag us along to visit them. But... Uh, for instance, when I started school at Richmond Primary, I don't remember any of my other friends outside of there coming to visit me in the towers. I mean, some of my friends in the school also lived in the towers, so they were absolutely fine with it, but others lived in homes. Um, and there was that real distinct difference between, oh, it's those kids and we don't mix with those kids. I wondered whether it's uniquely Australian to have the opinion that we have of public housing because depending on your upbringing, your circumstances, if you all you knew was growing up in a refugee camp somewhere where, mm. with no running water and then you were given a home in a public tower where there may be stigma and stereotype associated, you're probably going to be pretty bloody grateful, aren't you? And you're probably going to think that that's an awesome home. I I don't know, Rochelle, because um, all all of the, you know, migrants that lived in the towers in the 70s uh, came from a different background and some of them carried trauma with them. You know, some of them had escaped war or, um, you know, coups or those sorts of things. So not necessarily living in a refugee camp. So they also came with baggage. It wasn't just to make a better life but there's a certain uh depression that comes with being othered i know but at the same time we have a housing this is where it gets tricky doesn't it and it feels it feels hard to discuss this because it is it is people's homes and it's an emotional conversation but we have a housing crisis and high density is going to have to be the future to a certain degree of our housing solution so it's a little bit of how do we do it well what didn't work and what did work i think the solution is to not make them stick out like i agree we we can't keep spreading even though we're a big country because every time we spread we have to add more services to you know service everyone around that area and there's lots of private apartments going up at the moment and I'm all for it, that European sort of style of living. But why don't we make the towers look like the other vertical buildings? Why do we have to make them look distinctly like this really harsh environment? Why can't they integrate into the landscape like all of the others? I think strangely at the time they were seen as an architectural masterpiece, (laughs) like honestly and and around the world. The pebble concrete facade was the height of fashion. It was, it was brutalism. That was the form of architecture. They was, and they were seen as a prefab but easy, quick, cheap way to build something that mm. visually many people around the world thought was a great idea. Yeah, and that was seen as being quite high-tech as well at the time. And I guess design really is a key part of this conversation that we're having, not only of the design of them currently, what that does from a social status point, but also what the design of future public housing can look like. Chris Barnett is the Master's Studio Leader at the Architecture Faculty at the Melbourne School of Design and joins us now. Chris, you've looked a lot into the way that public housing towers look at the moment and what can be done if we were to, A, have a a brand new look at this and and build them up from scratch, but also redesign. And one thing that Seppel's um, been talking about here and that I'd love to get your opinion on is... What do we do to make public housing not stick out like a sore thumb? How do we make it just like every other house? Is that possible? Um, morning, Daniel. Yeah, I think that's um, a great challenge, which we run a couple of um, thesis studios on, students looking at the future of the towers in a 2050 context. I think there is that case that it was a very bold movement of the modern international style from the government at the time, which has, I think, a range of sort of acknowledged failings and and lack of uh, sensitivity to human scale and and what the community requires. Um, But I I think the tower is currently leaving quite a dilemma for the government in that there's such a large 
embedded part of our city now and with a 50 to 60 year history becoming quite old um had a, a lack of spending on them over the years as identified in the victorian public um parliamentary report um but they leave us in a position, I think that is true, that the rest of Melbourne in density and the way we're living in multi-storey buildings now has caught up to that bold original vision of the Victorian government. Um, and the towers currently sit with a large amount of both embodied social history in them and embodied energy in the concrete that's been used to create them. Um, so yeah, we, we really need to find a solution and the students very much identified the co-location of services mm. into the towers has been an important part of it. But really raising the dilemma for the government, yeah, can they f afford to demolish them? We've got 47 towers with over 7,500 apartments. And in our current situation where there's a crying need for greater housing stock um, coming into our social housing, how the government's going to deal with these existing tenants. Um, and I guess, especially given that the location of them is prime, and that's important because you have access to public transport, you have access to services as well. If we just focus on the design and the architecture and whether or not the towers in particular, let's just look at the towers for the moment, Chris, and whether or not they could be refurbished in some way. I have family members who for years lived in the Flemington Towers and inside they're huge, you know, big three bedrooms, separate kitchens, uh, compared to some of the apartments that are designed today where your couch is, you can lean back and put your hand in the sink, you know, they're very big uh, spacious homes so that's probably not an issue but what architecturally what are the issues is it the the lack of um, infrastructure like wheelchair access is it no balconies is it uh, laundries what's the architectural issue that we have in terms of what what could be changed to make them better i think the main challenge they present is their monolithic nature they're very pancaked in design with very small and meagre access corridors. So they really provide very little chance for communities to develop within them. Um, and lack of outdoor open space, the government's current policy is to be doing infill development around the wider sites. Now that was always seen, excuse me, that was always seen in the modernist vision as being the open space to mm. compensate the residents for a lack of balcony or private open space which is now getting infilled with apartments that will all have balconies which is now a minimum requirement for new apartments but in a way it's disenfranchising the existing tenants even further um, so look the students identified very much the opportunity that they've got single-sided corridors leading to the apartments in most of the blocks there's a couple of different formats in the tower designs that were rolled out in the 60s um, but the opportunity to build off those blank corridors and put in new services, put in communal open space, potentially gardens, a whole lot of programs that can be worked into it. And the biggest opportunity there is that it can potentially be done without decanting the tenants, having to move yeah. them out. That's and the big issue, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about 7,500 homes, so, but that's not people, that's the homes. And where do all of those people and their lives, you can't just pick them up and move them. Chris, stay with us. Marcus has called from Pakenham. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. How are you? Well, what did you want to say? Yeah, well, I was involved, uh, this is some years ago now, with a, a development in, it was out in Braybrook. It was the, the, the sort of flat pack houses, you know, four units in a block, et cetera, et cetera, and several units on the block. We were contracted the company i worked for was contracted to refurb all of those units while the tenants lived in those units now that was very very difficult from a contractor's point of view extremely difficult from a tenant's point of view and if you can imagine the the um the conversations i was having with various people on various days because you know the water had been turned off or this had happened or mm. that had happened and of course you've got to try and keep it up I think the biggest problem, and I think your architect um, who was mentioning the refurbing down at that place in Port Melbourne has, is probably the best kept. Um, the fact that they're actually considering demolishing it without even 
without even determining who is actually going to build and what's yeah. going to be put there, yeah. I think is a huge mistake. Yeah, lots of people, people are, yeah, lots of people are uh, angry about that, Marcus, as well. Absolutely huge mistake. And, and given that I've been in that scenario, and I, I completely understand we could have done it slightly differently or it could have been set up slightly differently, but it could have been set up in a way that a block was done at a time. It yeah. could have been set up that, okay, there's three families that have to be removed or four families that have to reload or, or dislocate for a little while. Mm. Um, but to do the whole lot all at once and to, to have developers come in the way the developers look. I live in Pakenham, so... You know, the way the developers work around here, it's just, I know. you know. The, and but, I mean, it's what Serpil was saying about think about the human. You know, this is mm. not when you're talking about relocation. It's, it's a very kind of clinical. You're talking about someone's home, someone's exactly. life. And like Marcus just brought up, it's often people are living in these homes. So it's not as simple as having the claw machine lift people out and put them somewhere else. Um Chris, I might put Marcus's call to you since your position is that you, you want to refurbish these um, places. How do we do that when so many people are still calling this home and we don't actually have a lot of housing stock that they can go to in the meantime while we refurbish them? How do we make that work all at once so it's not having a devastating human impact? Well, I, th I think that is the huge challenge for the government. Um, and I think that the student work identified this opportunity to to really add to and rejuvenate the towers for the next 60 years. Um, so insulating the facades, the government has done rolling foyer upgrades, some double glazing programs, have insulated some apartments, but the, the thermal performance and comfort, which then leads through to tenants' energy bills, mm -hmm. um, continues to be an issue. Um, Getting around all the towers to refurbish them is a massive undertaking on the scale of the buildings um, and that's why we were very much looking towards keeping that embodied energy and there does appear to be an opportunity there to add new structure in area, new services, potentially new apartments yeah. as well to help pay for it. Chris. But, um, really to be able to work off one side of it in a sound separated way and then break through into the existing buildings without the tenants needing to move out it's really chris i want to identified i want to ask a question around the the, the human aspect of the design because that, that's where my lens is coming from um, i mean it's great that you know you sort of add more insulation and make it sort of fit for purpose for the next 60 years but you know when you live in that environment and this was my experience in the late 70s as, as a kid that it didn't feel like a safe welcoming healthy environment so how do you design with the mental health aspect the mm. safety aspect the human aspect of feeling comfortable in your home how do you bring that to the design I say from a design perspective, that's all about breaking down the scale of the building into scale and there's different social studies of how big that group is that can function as an engaged community. But really to, to get out of the pancake planning of the buildings and create spaces that can unite two and three levels into spaces where the community interacts, functioning around the building you can have services introduced on that scale um, and really allow allow the communities to develop yeah. smaller communities within the monoliths where they can have a more human interaction and have better targeted human services provided. I think that's it really. It's have the community build a community within there and how involved is the community in these designs at the moment? Chris, thanks so much for your insights. Chris Barnett is a Master Studio Leader at the Architecture Faculty of Melbourne Design School at Melbourne University. I want to try and get through a couple of the texts that have come in on this. This is from Glenn. It says, I studied economics at Monash Uni in the late 1960s. One of the studies included a review of Sweden's decision to pull down all the high-rise public housing due to the issues such as that accommodation caused, including social dislocation and high crime rates. At the time in Victoria, we did not have one high-rise public housing estate. Sweden's alternative was to build four-storey buildings with open-plan design to connect with the local community. Yet Yet our great decision makers at the time have since clearly chosen to ignore such studies and to continue building high-rise public housing. That's from Glenn. And this says places like the Olympic Village in Heidelberg totally didn't work as social housing. 
works better in non-social housing areas. And that's something, Daniel, that I know you and I discussed off air because Mm. we're about to build a lot of athletes' village around this state and in regional Victoria with the foresight that they can then be used as a form of social or public housing. But they're being designed for athletes not designed for people to live in them. And it's like we need to flip our thinking here. Let's build homes for people who athletes can stay in for a couple of weeks, you know. Exactly. I mean, when, when let someone live in them. Yeah, and that's the thing. And we'll talk to a couple of our other guests as we continue through the hour about this. But there, there has been a real concerted push, especially in these regional areas, to have rather than a room that's good for a seven foot six basketballer, <laughs> have a room that's good for a family. So that's something we'll be talking about as we continue this conversation. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt here with your Melbourne Daniel Miles, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. And as people today are rallying to save one of the public housing complexes in Port Melbourne, they don't want it pulled down, they want it renovated. It's just one of the many complexes as a part of Victoria's big build. What do we do with our public homes that need some TLC? Do we demolish or do we renovate but either way how do we build them better One three hundred triple two seven seven four. 774 this text says these homes should be efficient all electric homes with energy efficient appliances internet connection access to ev car charging good insulation for both noise and weather solar garden lots of sunlight should be essential this will keep the price of utilities down and future proof the building now that all sounds perfect, but what's mm. the reality of that happening? And and everything like an EV or EV charging, they're expensive and only a few people in society can afford them, which is ridiculous within itself as well. But Caitlin Butters is the Chief Executive Officer at the Victorian Public Tenants Association. Caitlin, we're discussing people's homes, aren't we, and how we can build them better, uh, how we can ensure that they stay there for generations to come what changes would you like to see if we're redesigning or rebuilding them at the moment oh good morning first of all i think what's really important to remember is that people who live in public housing are just that they're people like everybody else and so funnily enough the things that they want out Mm. of their homes are the same things that everybody else wants out of their homes they're looking for you know Privacy and security, affordability and safety, confidence that their home is their home and they're not going to be asked to leave. We're looking for places where we can look look after our health and well-being, spend time with our families and take advantage of all of the opportunities that living in Australia is meant to afford us, but that people who are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity are so often locked out of. Caitlin, one of the things we've been talking about this morning is the optics of these towers, these monolithic structures that uh, in many ways scream, this is public housing. From some of the people that you represent, have they been speaking to you about what kind of an impact living in that sort of design of a building has on them personally, as well as just, I guess, how that makes them feel from a, a standing out perspective? We certainly have conversations with people where they raise with us the issue of the stigma that comes from living in an address that's well known to be a public housing address. So some of kind of the more well-known or famous estates, I suppose, are addresses that fit into that criteria. But for the most part, the conversations that we have with people every single day are around what personal issues they're having with their housing, what maintenance is or Mm. more likely isn't getting done, if they can afford their rent, if they have a problem with their neighbour, very core human issues are Upkeep is something we haven't discussed and that's the government's, you know, your landlord is is the government, but upkeep is a huge issue. Serpil? Absolutely. Uh, I think if you're not upkeeping, I mean, one of the things Chris, one of our previous guests said was that, you know, that we want these buildings to stay for the next 60 years. But if we want these buildings to stay for the next 60 years, uh, you know, that text message that said it should have uh, electrical car, uh, um, Wi-Fi, all that sort of thing. 
that sounds like utopian and pie in the sky, Rochelle, but they, they are necessary to future-proof because one of the things the pandemic taught us, for instance, is that there are areas where children couldn't access the internet and they failed in their schooling because they couldn't. So that's necessary for here and now, forget the future. Um, electrical cars are around the, the corner. So if we want people to function as part of regular society, that needs to be built into public housing as well. These aren't luxuries. Public housing has to keep up with the standards of today, the here and now. So if we need double glazed windows to keep heating and cooling to have more efficient buildings, that's not a luxury. That should be a standard that's embraced in public housing because that is what we want as a community to have healthier, Mm. better lives. We're speaking about public housing and what we can do to improve it. Caitlin Butters, we're spending $5.3 billion on on public housing as part of the the government's big bill. If you had the purse strings and you had control of that checkbook, what would you do uh, to improve public housing so that it does really benefit those people that you represent? Well, first and foremost, I would be spending that money building homes that are both owned and managed by the government, so traditional public housing. What's actually happening through the big housing build is that the homes that will be built will primarily be managed by the community housing sector. And whilst there are some core similarities between public and community housing, they're not the same thing. We, There are no communities in Australia, I think, that are in a position to say no to growth of social housing in social housing of any kind because undoubtedly we have a serious problem with housing and homelessness in this country but that doesn't mean that only one kind of social housing can and should grow Mm. both types of social housing should grow and right now we're really missing out in growing the public housing publicly owned publicly managed public infrastructure for people that most need it but in terms of what we're building in particular one thing i would say is that the new properties that we see coming through uh, renewal programs and programs like the big housing build are getting much closer to meeting those you know community standards around energy efficiency well insulated like mostly electrified properties where i see there being a huge problem is bringing our existing public housing stock back up to date yeah, how the new properties are great. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and how you know you can only retrofit for so long, which is why you know if people can afford it, they end up instead of renovating, they go. You know what? It's just easier to pull this thing down and start again. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, thank you. There's text in coming in for you saying thank you. Good on you, Caitlin. As most public housing tenants are usually invisible and vulnerable, that's my own personal opinion. Well said, and thank you to the ABC for discussing this. Caitlin Butters, Chief Executive Officer at the Victorian Public Tenants Association. Thanks so much for joining us. And speaking about the idea of it being run by the government, you know, being run by the public, it was interesting. I was speaking to a really old school friend's dad over the weekend, grew up in commission homes in Maui, and you would go and pay Mm -hmm. your rent to the commission, right? You would rock up to the commission offices, Mm. you would pay your weekly rent. But he said it was a well-oiled machine. You know, if your hot water system broke down, it was just replaced. It, It was painted every five years. The gutters were replaced every couple of years. All of the maintenance that should be done on a home was done. But somewhere along the lines, that's fallen away. And now we have, you know, public towers where lifts don't work and Mm. you've got to climb, you know, 10 stairs to get into your home, you know, 10 flights of stairs. Matt is out on the road. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Um, I want to make a bit of a point about, uh, um, I guess, uh, the density aspect or, or slapping lots of people together in public housing. Uh, I, uh, as a teen, I lived in a uh, commission house in Mossvale in New South Wales and no one knew that it was a commission house. And I also lived with my mum for a while in uh, commission flats in Woolloomooloo, uh, which everyone knew were commission flats. And I'm currently living in uh, social housing run by a housing charity. And one of the... Um, uh, issues I have besides the just the stigma of people knowing that you're in some form of social housing and mm. and, it, and it is a stigma um, uh, is the 
uh, I guess, the, the, the density issues because where, where I am at the moment, the organisation is fantastic. Um, I've got uh, um, some great neighbours, but in our whole scheme, uh, there's an awful lot of mental health issues where um, services aren't being necessarily overlaid properly for these people, and there's there's a lot of crime. And so I've got fellow uh, tenants who have come from significant trauma, a lot yeah. of them, and who feel constantly under threat because of all the late night stuff, the comings and goings, the, 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 the dealing and, and stuff. And this isn't unique to, to our little... Um, and that's exactly what circles, Matt, your line's kind of gone a little bit clunky on us, but circle, that's exactly what you were talking about as well, is that you are going to have people from all different walks of life, often marginalised people, people that do need services and wraparounds all thrown in together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Matt's spot on there. I, I think there's uh, the, the density issues are a real big issue because I don't think that many people with so many different needs and issues thrown together is a, a is a good recipe. It, it's you know it's going to explode at, at one point, and I think that you could still have high rises. Like the Port Melbourne example is, is one, the existing one, not the the plan that they've got in, uh, um, with the three hundred um, buildings, uh, because it's not that high rise. You you can still have certain clusters of people living in it like in a European sense if you go to Europe everyone lives in an apartment mostly right and that works but they are done in a way where there's a cap on heights there's a cap on how many people live in one particular um, building and it's cohesive which raises the question about how do we properly design these houses Simon not is the person we can ask that question to because he's an architect from BKK and has done a lot of work looking at things like pods for public towers and would also be keeping a close eye on what is happening overseas in public housings. But uh, Simon, thanks for joining us on the program. What can we do to design public housing in such a way that it empowers the community that lives there? Uh, it is difficult, and uh, thanks for having me on. Um, there, there's a lot of complex issues involved, and, and and I think we understand that no cohort is the same either. Um, we've worked on projects where it's you know predominantly you know, men in their 50s and 60s who have alcohol issues living alone, and you know, that's a very different environment to say a family uh, type environment. We need we need a range of solutions. There's no one size fits all for this. It's not going to be a tower solution, apartment solution, or a house. They're all going to be uh, they're all going to be required to get across the line. And and sometimes it's better to have much more communal living. Sometimes it's much better to not include that because it invites conflict. So um, it needs skilled designers. It needs really skilled people running these projects um, from the project management side and procurement side of them. And then it needs very skilled operators in in the operate operation of them into the long term as well um i would just say back to that original point earlier though about you know evs and other things so the standards being required of the new buildings now is at a very high standard i um we stopped doing um you know uh developer-led housing because of it was getting to such a low standard and um it's not something that we would support but we're wow. highly supportive of the of the um social housing bill because of the um because of the requirement and it's because they have a long-term ownership over the assets so quality is important sustainability is important running costs are important and the, the building code of australia is about to the new edition of it is requires all car parking to have provision for batteries um, not all car parking but a, a percentage of it to have requirement for uh, ev charging and um and batteries simon when we're talking about refurbishing there's the smaller scale two three-story medium density public mm. housing complexes then we have the towers and that's sort of different all together and you actually designed some pods that would sort of jut out of the towers that would give some separate space maybe even a, a balcony or some kind of ventilation all of the issues when I mean, you look at some of the issues that the towers have from light to green space to fresh air uh, ventilation efficient heating and cooling you start to think how possible is it to refurbish the towers is it I don't well, know. Is it just easier well, to pull them down? Well, I mean, uh, in some ways it is. It's not. A, it's not easy if you start to put the environmental and social cost of doing that on top. 
Um, the reason we won a competition with that project, and unfortunately it was done under a government that then changed, so it wasn't, didn't quite have the same impetus under the new government, but we still think it has currency, um, was because of the complex, uh, this was out in Footscray, and as I was referring to before, as a complex um, cohort where there were people with some very, and this is not uncommon to these towers, some very complex needs. So decanting them out, all to, all out if you take all those people out of there for two years while you build something new, um, it sort of destroys the community. It's very difficult to do. Um, so what we proposed was a, a it's a fabricated off-site. And the, one of the big issues with these buildings is the external fabric. They're very poorly built, those 1970s towers, 1960s towers. Um, and by creating this pod, once you, we created an opening in the facade, and once from it took four hours to from the moment this left the factory to have it installed into the facade of one of these quite typical housing commission towers from the from the 60s. Um, it went from R zero point three fabric, which is quite low, to R two point five in terms of its insulation. It went from one and a half stars to seven stars, um, and then it was a twenty five percent. That's all passive too. That's nothing mechanical in that, and twenty five percent increase in floor area. And you could do them Simon, two to three Simon, at a time. Simon, just very quickly, um, one of the things that came up in the pandemic was, you know, the towers were referred to as, you know, vertical cruise ships because they were a petri dish essentially for um, virus transmission. Is that sort of factored into design, that, that health aspect into design? Just very quickly because we're coming up to the news. Natural ventilation, I think it's important in every building we do now and it's been incorporated into, into many, not just in housing. So I think there's a lesson learned there for everyone. So not, just for, not just for pandemics, but also for yeah. um, cooling as well. Oh, absolutely. And it comes back to livability because these are humans. Simon, thanks yeah. so much for your time. We appreciate it. Simon Knott is from BKK Architects. Serpil Chanelmish, as we said, Director of Written and Recorded, which is a content-making uh, marketing agency, makes podcasts and writes copies and does all forms of communication training. Thank you for just a little insight today. I mean, let's hope that the community does get consulted more on this because, as we said, these are people's homes that we're talking about and we all know that if you don't feel safe, you don't feel secure mm. in your home, it impacts every single part of your life. I think all solutions that start from the human aspect, Rochelle, are always going to be better and I hope that that, that message gets through. Daniel Miles joining us from ABC Warnable as always. Thank you, mate. We'll speak to you uh, next week. Thanks, Rochelle. I'll be back with you tomorrow. And tomorrow we're looking at accessibility and exercise, everyday exercise if you are living with a disability. How easy is it to get to your local gym, to go to your pool, to do yoga, to do Zumba? Do we look at exercise through ableist eyes? There are some big changes that are happening with some local councils at your local gym, even at local schools and the work that PE teachers are doing. So that's tomorrow. If you've missed any part of today's program, just subscribe to The Conversation our podcast go to the abc listen app and subscribe speak to you tomorrow